right. Good morning, everyone. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. And it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Ron. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at uh, Pillar, and uh, John is taking a well-deserved day off today. And so you get me. Um, I was hoping for an amen, but it's okay. No pressure. Today we get to start with uh, a new book. I get to open up a new book uh, in Second in Peter that we're going to look at for the next five weeks. And so I wanted to start here with, with this phrase, famous last words. You've heard often use that phrase. But I wanted to start with actual last words from famous people. These are the last words people have spoken before they died, or maybe the last thing that they have written, and some of them are pretty interesting. Harriet Tubman, leader of the Underground Railroad, her last words were, swing low, sweet chariot. I'd like to have that as one of my last words. T.S. Eliot, the poet, simply his last word was his wife's name, Valerie. That's sweet, I like that. The comedian, tel early television star, Groucho Marx, uh, I think this was planned, but his last words were, this is no way to live. Uh, probably the strangest is George Orwell, the writer of 1984 and Animal Farm. His last written words are, at 50, everybody has the face he deserves. <laughs> I'm not going to take offense to that. The jazz drummer, famous drummer, Buddy Rich, was going into surgery that he never came out of, but on his way into surgery, the nurse asked him, is there anything you can't take? And he said, country music. <laughs> and my favorite one of the list is Steve Jobs, co-founder of Apple Computer. His last words were, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow, three times. Famous last words. Today, in our beginning of our study of Second Peter, this book has some famous last words meant for believers. Peter writes this book as an old man at the end of his life, ready to die. He tells us that his, his time on earth is, no, is not going to be long. So at the end of his life, he wants to give us reminders, famous last words to remember as Christians. 
And so starting, the whole series kind of is, is pinned around this verse in uh, chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. It says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these things. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that putting off my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. This book is a letter of Peter giving us his famous last words. And the title of this whole series is called Family Reminders, Enduring Gospel Realities. These are the family reminders for those who call themselves Christians and are a part of Jesus' family. And these are reminders that you're going to hear over the next five weeks. Now, uh, being an old guy at the end of his life, Peter, that is, not me, uh, I am the oldest of our team, so John was like really eager for me to start this off, and I, I'm not going to take offense to that. But uh, we're going to use these next five weeks to look at areas of the gospel that are worth remembering and reminding one another. Peter writes that he will make every effort to remind us, uh, his readers, and eventually us, that we can recall that he, when he is no longer there. Peter will discuss it throughout this series false teachers, the importance of scripture, end times, to remind us of important areas. But that's not for today. We're not going to cover those today. Today's first family reminder is the importance of works in the Christian life for those who are in Jesus' family. The importance of works in the Christian life. So my main idea is this. Through God's goodness, Christians actively pursue spiritual maturity, not to gain salvation, but to grow in godliness. This is a reminder we need to have here, is that though, through God's goodness, his empowerment, we as Christians actively pursue spiritual maturity, not because it's connected to salvation, but because we want to grow in godliness. And the I use today for this is effort. We're going to see Peter use that same phrase, making every effort. My three points are the easiest three points. They're not even alliterative. John loves all those alliterations. Mine are easy. God gives, I respond, we grow. That's it. God gives, I respond, we grow. Now, we're talking about works in the Christian life, and we have to begin with God. We have to begin. Whenever we talk about works, we can conflate the two, salvation and works, and we kind of mix them up in some ugly uh, collaboration, but we need to start with God. Peter starts with God, and we start with God. And so he opens his book with this, these first verses. And Grant, do we have a problem with this mic? There we go. Uh, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And then he says that we become partakers of this divine nature. 
So before we talk about anything of works, we have to focus in on God gives. Everything springs from God. God gives. He gives us salvation and knowledge and escape and rescue. Before we say anything else about works, we have to camp here for a moment and be very clear that God gives. God is the initiator, not our works. And we hope this is the same message you hear every single week at Pillar, that we were dead and God made us alive. Not because we did good or we worked really hard at it or because God sees something excellent in us or we served in the kids' room for five weeks consecutive. None of those things. God pursued us while we were rebels and dead. That's where things start. Now, God, it's, Peter tells us that divine power, God's power, grants us life and godliness to us in such a way that we become partakers of the divine nature. And that's something that could become heretical really quickly. We're not divine, but we are, granters, uh, we are granted the re to be receivers of this divine nature. God, everything comes from God. Not only our salvation, but even our good works come from God. And then we get to be receivers. God gives and he gives and he gives. And everything else that I'm going to say uh, this morning all springs from that truth. You'll hear often that God doesn't need anything from you when you come to Pillar and sit here this morning. And I want to begin with that. You don't need to perform or act or try to impress anybody here this morning. God is glad you are here and we are too. God pursues you as a deeply loved son and daughter regardless of how you're doing in personal works toward Christian maturity. With this in mind, that's a starting point. With this in mind, God gives, then I respond to it. Peter reminds us that my good works in Christ, in faith, matters to God. I must actively pursue holiness to grow in my Christian walk. Now, sometimes folks in our, our circles, whether it's Acts 29, Reform circles, however you want to, whatever circles we're, we're in here, we spend a lot of time talking about all the things that God does on our behalf, how God pursues us. But sometimes we miss that we have a responsibility in this action as well. And so we're afraid to mention that we need to work on our Christian growth. Some churches may even have work as a four-letter word. Well, it is a four-letter word, but you, you know what I mean. Uh, that work becomes something that we shouldn't talk about because it's all God. But it's not. My message today is that we need to work and strive and run toward developing our Christian walk. Peter says it. Paul says it. Jesus says it. God's grace comes to us in unearned favor, for sure. That's grace. But we respond by actively seeking out growth in him. Peter, again, reminds us his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, Jerry Bridges wrote a classic of the Christian faith, The Pursuit of Holiness. Has anyone read this book? 1970s or so. Of course, Tracy has. Um, <laughs> Uh, and so this is a slim book of power for the Christian. They've updated the cover, but I really like this old one because I read this 20-something years ago, and it was the same exact cover here. Now, Jerry Bridges starts in his preface with a farmer, and he talks about how a farmer is, is one who goes out in the field, and he sows, and he fertilizes, and he cultivates in back-breaking work from sunrise to sunset. But he is utterly dependent on forces beyond himself for a successful harvest. He works and works and works hard, but he has to tr rely on God for that harvest. 
Like the farmer, our Christian life, Jerry Bridges says, is a joint venture, a partnership. While we may talk about, uh, love to talk about all the work that God does in our lives, the theological term for that is justification. We've been justified by God with no work of our own. But in our Christian work, there is a responsibility, and we sometimes are re reluctant to talk about our responsibility in our Christian walk, which is the theological term is sanctification. And so justification, God alone. Sanctification, we have a joint venture and a partnership. And um, put that back up there, please, uh, Emma. Jerry Bridges' book has a little subtitle on it. Uh, and you, you can almost see it maybe. The subtitle is from 1 Corinthians. It says, run in such a way as to obtain the prize. And so you can hear Paul's plea in that. Run in a way to uh, obtain the prize. This isn't just sit back and do nothing. It is that farmer mentality that I'm going to work hard, but I also know that God is the one who brings life. Now, as Christians today, we may adopt a let go and let God mentality in our Christian growth. We put ourselves on this spiritual autopilot. Now, we don't have a let go and let God mentality for any other area of our life, probably. I mean, just look at physical workouts. No Christian prays for instant muscle. I mean, if that were the case. Uh, but no one prays for that, right? We work hard at, at having some kind of physical gains or our finances. No one just thinks that instantly you're going to be budgeted. It's, it, budgeting takes work, and saying no to some things takes some work, and we're willing to do that. And better relationships, and you, you don't have to be married to know, but let me tell you, as a married guy, if I think that things are just going to happen and be better in marriage without doing anything, let go and let God. I've prayed for our marriage, Christy. It should be fine. Fix yourself. Uh, that would be... She's in second service. I'm not going to say that in there. Uh, is that we don't have this let go and let God mentality or a, a, obtaining a school or something like that, a license or a degree. We don't have that in any other mentality in our life is that we pray to God for help on all of these things, but we know that things take effort and work on our behalf. But somehow we don't apply that to spiritual lives. There is no standing still in the Christian life. And this is what Peter's message for us today is that we cannot just stand still and expect to be holy. Peter continues, this is what Jonathan read for us today. For this very reason, make every effort, every effort, there's that phrase again, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Make every effort. This phrase right here is a work phrase. It is not a let go and let God phrase. This is a work phrase. It's a pursuit phrase. It's a human responsibility phrase. We need to make every effort. And Peter gives us this really nice, cleverly written list. Now this is, here it goes. You ready for this? I'm going to give you your worthless English teacher word of the day. This connection where we have the last word of a clause, phrase, or sentence begin with the clause, phrase, or sentence, the first word in the next one, it's called an anadiplosis, right? Have you heard that before? You'll never, ever need it again, okay? This is why I did not have a date all through high school. Uh, so anadiplosis, it's, it literally means a doubling, a redoubling, is that you end up putting things together here. Peter isn't the only one who does this. Paul does this in Romans 8.30. For those who were predestined, he also called. For those he called, he also justified. For those he justified, he also 
Do you know the end of that? Glorified. Uh, and so we see this. And if, if biblical text is too lowbrow for you, here's something from a movie that I think someone knows. Another anadiplosis, the general who became a slave, the slave who became a gladiator, the gladiator who defied an emperor. It's gladiator. Yeah, good. So uh, Mac Maximus, I think Maximus, is that the, the king? He says this about um, I, 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 Russell Crowe's character. Thank you, thank you. Russell Crowe's character. So this anadiplosis is a really clever rhetorical uh, flair that writers use in writing to communicate something. Because the anadiplosis highlights things. It emphasizes things, mainly because you're doubling them up. There's this repetition. Every word is used double. But even better than that, it has a logical connection one to another. It flows really well. So we have this virtue, faith, virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, etc. is that this works almost as a chain going around, and they're all connected. And when a chain is connected, it has strength and power. So make every effort to do these, Peter says. The anatoplosis puts all of these together, and the anatoplosis makes it so that Peter gives us how you can make every effort to supplement your faith. And so he gives us these nouns here. Look at, look at this list of nouns that he gives us. Faith with virtue, and virtue here means excellence. So our faith then combines with excellence, and this excellence with knowledge, we grow in the knowledge of God. This knowledge turns into self-control. The more knowledge we have, the more we're able to control things that, that we want to do in our life. And usually, biblical writers, when they use self-control, they mean some sexual self-control. Self-control with steadfastness, patience. In other words, we look at time with God's eyes and not our own. Steadfastness with godliness, with God-likeness, is that our lives reflect God more than ever and this link continues, this chain continues, godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. So this anadiplosis makes this really nice chain that starts with faith, ends with love, and has this whole nice list all throughout. Now, when we look at lists like this, this actually could cause discouragement. Peter means it for encouragement, but we look at this list and we realize all the ways that we have failed. And so whenever there's a checklist we start checking things off and, and one of two wrong things happen. Either we start checking a lot of boxes and think we're good. Look how many checks I have. I'm set. But really the other way goes. You look at that list and realize all the ways that you have failed. And then we start creating an anadiplosis of our own. We start saying things like, well, you know, I don't really know much about the Bible, so a lack of knowledge leads to a lack of self-control. And my self-control led me to do things and look at things last night that I shouldn't have done. And therefore, I'm not godliness. And then we start linking these false anadiplosis statements together. And then we have this ugly chain that is used to beat ourselves over the head with. And that's wrong. These things, it's not a checklist that makes us a Christian. It's a response to that we are made a Christian and that we're going to grow in them. And we have to always remember Peter's words that his divine power, God's power has granted us all things to pertain to life and godliness and this anadiplosis. God powers us to do all of this. God is working with us. This is encouraging. This should encourage us, not cause us to despair. Because our Christian life, we live a Christian life as a reflection of Jesus. And we are all like these little tiny mirrors of sorts that we make every effort to reflect Jesus in our lives. 
And so oftentimes this mirror, when we first become a Christian, it's a little tiny, tiny sliver of a mirror, like when you drop it and there's a sliver of silver that you can kind of make out that it was a mirror at one time. That little sliver is us. And then as we go, we grow toward godliness, this mirror piece grows. And maybe where you are now is a nice, healthy shaving mirror size, you know, which is good. We want to, we want to be a, a bigger mirror because the bigger mirror we are, our lives reflect Jesus. We are more like Jesus. Peter continues in 9 through 11, whoever lacks these qualities, if you don't do these, if you are somebody who doesn't pursue life with making every effort for a godly life, is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there would be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter says a few hard things in this section, but he starts off with being nearsighted. By acting a non-godly life, to, to have this let go and let God mentality, to just coast on autopilot, you are operating nearsighted and blind. Um, it, it was about 10, 15 years ago, I bought my first set of reading glasses at Target. This isn't them. Uh, they're a lot stronger now, but I had to buy my first. Things were a little fuzzy, you know, so I had to buy a, a pair. I felt really bad about that. I was, you know, I was expecting my AARP membership to come in the mail after that, and then the Denny's early, early bird special discount. And so, uh, like, buying your first pair of reading glasses is tough. And so I did, and now I can see a little bit better. Now, that's farsightedness. Peter talks about nearsightedness, is that he's saying when you don't live this Christian life, you end up not being able to see anything here. You can only see what's in front of you here, but you can't see anything else here. I went to the optometrist after that, and he just said, everybody, when you turn 40, you need reading glasses. So enjoy. It's coming. It's coming. Uh, so if you lack these qualities, Peter said, you are living, you're walking around in a blind, as a blind man in a Christian life. You are the over 40 crowd if you are somebody who is not pursuing a Christian life. You are the Mr. Magoo of Christians. And that's an image that you don't want, for sure. But you live in such a way, if you're not pursuing Jesus in a godly life, then it is as if you're blind, stumbling around, and you're missing the full clarity of Jesus and the full clarity of the world. You're not seeing things rightly. In fact, you're not seeing things so rightly, Peter says, that it's as if you've forgotten that you were cleansed from your sin, or at least you weren't, you're living like you've forgotten that you were cleansed from your sin. He goes on to say, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. I knew this in the NAS version, and I like it better, is make your calling and election sure. Now this sounds, this seems like a hard, hard saying. Peter is not saying that our salvation follows if we live right. Live right, and therefore your salvation can be guaranteed. God doesn't know. He called you, he saved you, he justified you, but we're not sure yet. Let's wait and see. That is not the way it is. But living right confirms that we are forgiving and a Christian. And you know this is true. You know this is true from your life. When you have those seasons of life where you are close, you're living in community, close to God, you feel like you are really understanding the depths of Jesus, you know that your, your salvation feels more real to you than in the other side, in those seasons where you're not pursuing him. And so Peter is saying, make your calling and election sure. 
we see this, Paul uses the same phrase in, really, this is my favorite Bible verse in all of the Bible, Colossians 1.10. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Make every effort. They're parallel statements. Can you hear that? Our walk and our works should be parallel to the gospel, is what Peter is saying in these final uh, famous last words. Our, make our lives as beautiful as the gospel that saved us is. Our actions are this response. God gives, I respond, and then the result of that is that we grow. How can we not grow with this? God gives, I respond, and now we grow. When we commit to make every effort to, in our Christian life, we grow. And th there's no better example of this than just in our own houses with children. Children come into our house, uh, and they are our children. Nobody has decreed them our children. They're our children. As babies, they're in our house. Nothing can change that. They arrived in diapers, and they don't do much, right? Now, if they stayed in diapers all these years, if they continued on in diapers until their mid-20s, they would still be our children. And they would still, their position in our family would not change. It would be gross and disgusting, but if they sat on the couch in diapers, 20 years old, watching TV, they would still be our children. Let's have that not be, but uh, they would still be our children. But our, out of our love for them, out of our love for our children, we teach them and train them and we guide them first out of diapers and then into some other skills. We want them to grow up and develop. We want them to be more mature now, however old your children are now, than when they were as babies. This makes sense. We, as parents, empower our children. We give them all the tools necessary to uh, grow and develop. And when they do, it is good for them when they can learn. I mean, you know this, when a kid pees in the potty for the first time, the sense of pride uh, that one gets, it's good for them when they develop out of that babyhood and out of those diapers. But it also brings honor to us as parents. Paul uses this metaphor, uh, same thing with babies, is that you're like baby Christians still drinking milk when you ought to be eating meat. Grow up past this. So we have this plea, stop being babies in diapers. Do not live a diaper-filled life as Christians or a filled diaper life. That's grosser, I guess, if you switch it. But uh, either way, like, let's get out of diapers. Let's get out of the, the milk of, of our Christian lives. And commentator Douglas Moo says this very well. He says, when God gives us the ability to become godly, which he has, it is our responsibility to use the power he has made available to us and work at becoming people who please God in every phase of life. This is important here. When God gives us the ability to come, become godly, his divine power empowers us, fuels us. It is our responsibility to use what God's gifts are to us in order to grow and please God in every area of our life. And I think if we went around the room, we would all say amen to that because that is, we want to please God in all areas of our life. But pleasing God in all areas of our life through our Christian walk takes some work. Now this, the, the first pushback is legalism. You're preaching legalism. This is not legalism at all. If you want to go to a legalistic church, I'm sure there's one nearby that you can find. This is not legalism. Legalism is us working somehow to earn God's favor in some way. 
We create checklists and habits and routines that God would notice me. We wave our hands. God, look at all the things I'm doing for you. Come on, God, look, look, accept me. That's legalism. That is demonic and that is evil. The biblical view of growth is that God saves us and then we make every effort we can out of, uh, out of response to that to be able to live godly lives. Now let's look actively for ways to grow in a Christian life. Christians don't grow in a vacuum. You will not grow, you will not wake up five years from now or 10 years from now a more mature, wiser, stronger Christian if you don't do anything about it today. Now that's a reality and we can take Christian out of it and talk about muscle gains. I don't know if that's like, I don't know why I'm using all these muscle metaphors. I don't know, maybe, maybe it's because I just worked out. Uh, and so, but the idea is like, you're not going to wake up 10 years from now and think you're going to be really healthy. You're not going to wake up at 50 years old. I mean, if you do nothing if, and wake up at 50 years old, this is what you have to look forward to right here. Okay. <laughs> so we need to do something in order to change if that's what we want to do. So our Christian life doesn't happen in a vacuum is that we need to look for ways to grow actively in our Christian life. Now, this is captured best in my favorite poetic line from Tennyson's poem, Ulysses, uh, I'm sure you've heard this before. It was also my school, my high school motto, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. I like this. I like this picture because it fits in with Peter's make every effort, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. This is how I want to find my Christian life, not to be accepted by God, but to live as a reflection of God. We want our lives reflecting him Mirrors that continue to grow wider and clearer and more beautiful. And the more holy and the more mature we are as Christians, we get to reflect Jesus more. And so here are, are a few ways, perhaps, that we can consider growing this mirror of our lives. The most powerful agent of Christian growth, by far, in my life and probably in yours, is being around a solid Christian community that loves us and cares for us. So do you have this in your life? Do you have solid Christians that you can lock arms with that can stir you up to love and good works and vice versa? Do you have people who can speak honest truth and hard truth in your life to call you on your junk and you them? Maybe this isn't a missional community. Maybe it's a, a fight club that you have. But this is what we need. I've been a Christian now for over 35 years. Now, that should be something like an encouragement. Wow, I've been with Jesus 35 years. It is so discouraging when I hear that number because at 35 years, I should have memorized the full Bible, at least forward, uh, maybe even a little backwards too. It seems like a long time. I was a knucklehead when I became a Christian, and there is so much knuckleheadery still in me right now, and it's, it's kind of depressing. However, I, as I was preparing for this sermon, I jotted down and I put it up here. Um, I, it wasn't meant, I wasn't writing this to show you, but I, I want to put this, I was just jotting down areas in my life, like where do these 35 years go as a Christian? And I just jotted down places and times that were vibrant Christian community that people poured into me. So I became a Christian at a church in Rhode Island called St. Charles. I was there for about two years. It was an explosion of growth. Then joined the military, kind of, you know, whatever. And then you see that highlighted two years that just was like, hmm. And then I, I PCS to Germany, and I was involved with the Cadence House there. Explosive growth. People, mentors coming beside me who poured into me, spent time with me, taught me the Bible. 
Then I left, got out of the military, four years, you know, whatever. Christy and I went to, uh, when we were dating, went to a, a church called Central Bible Fellowship. We were involved in our first small group. And that group, that was in 1996 or something. We still talk about that small group of people today, how they cared for us. We were two young people dating, and older, wiser Christians poured into us. You know, a year in the highlighting there, you know, whatever. Kind of got married sometime in there. Christy and I were part of a great church plant in Portland called Portland Community Church. Two years of power of people, and we loved it. You know, then I kind of got, got a teaching job in Dodia. We moved to Korea, moved to Germany. That's kind of that four-year bit. And then we moved to, to Okinawa, and we were involved in the harbor. We were involved, of course, in Pillar for these last six years. And those were areas where just tremendous growth. So if we look at this life chart, we have this kind of thing here. And it just proved to me as I was, I was writing this and planning on this is that where my Christian growth happened is when I was involved with people. Now, the highlighting here... I was still going to church. I was still listening to sermons. I was still reading Christian books. In fact, in that first four-year block, I went to Bible college. And I still don't put that as a spiritual explosion because I didn't have people pouring into my life like that. So where is yours? If you were to do your life chart, are you living in this highlighted area now? Or can you say that you're living right now in this place where people are pouring into you? If you want to grow powerfully, that is the way to do it, is get people around you and spend time with them in missional communities, in some area, Bible study. Lauren Flores does such a great job with women's ministry. There are so many entry points for you to get involved, to have people speak truth and life to you. We should seek fellowship and transparency in our lives with equal parts joy and desperation. That's what it should be, equal parts joy and desperation to find people to be honest with us and us with them. So Peter tells us, make every effort to seek community, seek community. Now, along with that, corollary, corollary to that is finding a mature Christian that uh, people used to call it disciple me. That may, maybe that sounds awkward. Hey, will you disciple me? It sounds creepy sometimes, but... It could just be asking someone to go out to coffee with you, asking a mature Christian, not an older Christian age-wise, but just somebody who's been further down the road, and just starting a question, what, how, do I become a more, how do I become a better Christian? How do I be, live a Christian life? How, what did you do to be a stronger Christian? Those questions would really go so far in your life by asking that question. Christian community, finding a mature Christian, and then another one is just to read. Now, I know some of you are quick to say, no, I'm not a reader. But as Christians, we are people of the book, and we ought to read. God has revealed his truth with us in words in a book, and we ought to read. There's no requirement. You don't have to read the Bible in a week. Uh, but maybe your goal is something very easy and manageable. Reading a book like Colossians or Philippians or, or Ephesians, one of these very easy entry points. Reading a paragraph a day. I mean, don't even... Talk about chapters or books a day. Just read a paragraph. Read a verse a day. That could be something in which would help start your knowledge. Now, reading, like praying and fasting and lifting weights and saving money and learning to scuba dive, whatever, 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 they all take discipline. And so make every effort to read, whatever that means, whatever little reading that is, let's make every effort to that. Now, with reading comes this. You need to understand this truth. Your phone does not love you. 
I know it feels otherwise, okay? Your phone doesn't love you, and you have a toxic relationship with your phone. So I'm here as your friend to tell you you have a toxic relationship with your phone. I did, and I had to divorce that in my life. We need to understand that our phone can be a big obstacle to our Christian life. This is one of my favorite topics, so I'm, I'm making this very short on purpose. Um, Nicholas Carr wrote this great article, and this is 15 years ago, Is Google Making Us Stupid? And he has this great line. He says, once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words, now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet, uh, jet ski. Isn't this true in our lives? Is that we used to be able to read a whole chapter without distractions, and now we can't. Something went wrong with our brains here. This is such an apt image. Maybe it's not you. You all are probably, you have a very healthy relationship with your phones. It's just me, okay? So I'm just going to confess some sin. You all are great. I'm terrible. So uh, in this, I would get up early, and I still do. I get up about 4.30 in the morning to read for a half hour or so. But I get up, I look at my phone, I'm just, I'll just check the news. Uh, you know, I just want to see if, that, if my mom wrote, because, you know, different time zones, you know, I got to, you know, East Coast time. And then 30, 40 minutes later, even if I do open the Bible, which I didn't at that time, is that my brain is in such a frenetic state of reading the news headlines and getting angry and just all of this stuff that I had no ability to read. We need to retrain our minds. Our brains are in a frenetic state, and we need to retrain ourselves to read better. And I just have adopted this very simple principle is at night, I shut my phone off, and I don't turn it on again until I'm in the car headed to work. And that right there, that small move has made so much difference. It's a small move that you could just have now 30 minutes, even if we go back to reading, five minutes. Just read for five minutes without touching your phone. Try it. We need to make every effort to break the shackles of our phones away from us. And then finally, the men's retreat. Three weeks, a little over three weeks from now, we have a men's retreat, and we really want you to come to it, if you're a man. Uh, it's on <laughs> this very subject. I should have made that clear. It's on this very subject of spiritual disciplines. What I'm talking about today is a perfect segue to what we're going to do at the men's retreat. 30 men at Akuma. We have people from our midst speaking on these different subjects. So we have Keon speaking on godly relationships and friendships. Brett Myers talking about service. Zachariah Pittman on Bible memorization. Josh Emmerich on prayer. And there are some other ones as well. These are all areas that men, you can use this as a step to get closer to God. It's easy, but it costs. It costs money, time, and leave. Money, we can help you with. If money is an issue, we got it. We got you. That's an easy one. Time, it's Thursday night, Friday, and Saturday. That takes some time away from your family. Leave, you need to take a day of leave on Friday, probably. It costs. I can't help you with time or leave, but if you need money, we church can help you with that. But we want to make every effort to get involved in the lives of other men. That's an easy step that we can take. So what are the areas that you need to take in order to be able to take some steps toward maturity? Imagine if all of us in here were committed to growing together and to make every effort to stir up one another to love and good works. We encourage each other to fight. We make every effort to pursue Jesus together. What would that look like in our Sunday gatherings? What would it look like in our MCs, in our community? Or better yet, what would it look like at the end of 10 years from now? If you committed to that today, if we all committed to that, 10 years from now, the you will be so much further down the road. You would reflect Jesus so much better 
because of these small moves you make today. Lots of mirrors here. We have lots of mirrors that reflect the glory of Jesus. And more reflective, we reflect Jesus better when we're all together. This is the beauty of the church. Lots of mirrors coming together and reflecting Jesus together. I wanted to show you where the largest mirror on earth is. Do you know about this? The largest mirror on earth. It's the Yuyuni Salt Flats in Bolivia. The pictures don't even do it justice here. It's 4,000 square foot, it's a 4,000 square foot salt flat with a few inches of water. And this is the largest reflective area in, on earth. And it is a place where the earth and the sky all become one. And you can see that both in the, the daytime and the nighttime, the evening sky. I love this picture because this is the church in a sense, is that we all reflect Jesus in this beautiful, beautiful place that we're all reflecting Jesus. And there's a blurring of earth and sky. There's a blurring of God's work and our work kind of all put together in this beautiful, breathtaking picture. This right here, this picture is, the, is how the body of Christ ought to reflect the beauty and the majesty and the glory of our great God. This right here is worth making every effort to live lives of holiness, to pursue God, to be mature in Christ, to run as to obtain the prize, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. This is worth that. However, we know that this may not be you today. We know that perhaps you lack the strength, or you feel defeated, or you are on empty, weighed down in sin, whether yours or somebody else's. You hear me talking about running and trying harder, and that just is more discouraging, because you can't run today. You may be living in those highlighted portions of your life chart that I showed earlier, outside of community, weakened. Well, friends, this is the beauty of the church. If you can't run, if you are weakened, if you are burdened, we can run with you. We can help lift and carry that burden that you have together. You are not alone. You are not alone. We will stir you up toward love and good works, even if it means we have to pick you up while we stir you up. We'll do it. Remember Peter's line that his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It is God's divine power through people here that can lift you up and strengthen you. He is the one who gives us the power to run. So just looking at this, our, our main idea as we, as we close, through God's goodness, and it is all God's goodness because we give him glory, Christians actively pursue spiritual maturity, not to gain salvation, it's a totally different thing, but to grow in godliness. And while this letter may be Peter's famous last words, I wanted to end with some famous first words. Someday we'll hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we're pursuing for the glory of Jesus. So let's make every effort together to grow in holiness and pursue him today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this. We thank you for this reminder. Please show us ways, show us how, show us people that we can gather Together, Lord, to be better reflections of you and your son, Jesus. Amen.